This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fake or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And we welcome everyone in on a Sunday morning, and we welcome you into your radio doctor, and we thank all of our listeners for tuning in for what is quickly turning out, Marianne, to be a fantastic destination on the radio dial to get educated for the listening audience, me included, to absorb the information from you and your great guest and get educated. Thank you so much, Joe. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another Sunday here on Your Radio Doctor. As Joe mentioned, I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I hope you enjoyed your Valentine's Day. Now grab a cup of coffee while you listen to our show. Today we welcome a very special guest, Dr. Rohinton Morris, the Anthony Narducci Professor of Surgery and the Director of the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals. Welcome, Ro. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Now, I know you grew up in Pittsburgh, but since you've lived in Philly, have you met our most famous citizen, Rocky Balboa? I have taken a picture with him. Oh, I'm impressed. So, did he say, yo, Ro? <laughs> no. Okay. We got that out of the way. <laughs> February, American Heart Month. We're focusing these four weeks on the various aspects of heart disease, prevention, risks, testing, treatment. So, the first week, we asked Dr. Howard White to distinguish whether that feeling in the chest is heartburn or a heart attack. Then last week, Dr. Mike Savish helped us distinguish whether to stent or not to stent. Today, Dr. Morris will talk about various forms of cardiac surgery, including bypass surgery for those blocked arteries, repairing or replacing heart valves, or LVAD, left ventricular assist device. It's a mechanical device inserted in the chest to help a failing heart continue to pump. And again, every week, our goal is to explain medical conditions in clear, understandable terms so that if and when you face these issues, you can make educated decisions for yourself and your loved ones. So let's begin. The heart receives oxygen-filled blood from the lungs. Then it pumps it out to the rest of the body, your brain, all your vital organs. But the heart itself is an organ, and it also needs fresh blood for fuel. The arteries that feed the heart are on the surface of the heart. And if one of those arteries is blocked, that area of heart muscle is deprived of oxygen, and that spot can die. And in effect, that's the definition of a heart attack, wouldn't you say, Dr. Morris, Director of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Jefferson? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, the fact that when a patient has pain, it's an indication that they're lacking oxygen to their heart muscle. So it's, you're lucky, I guess, if you have a warning, if you get that knock at the door, mm, 
what's that elephant on my chest? And you act on it because some people aren't so fortunate. That's correct. A lot of patients uh, first appear, their first symptom is actually a heart attack mm-hmm. rather than having just chest pain. So we talked before about the different ways to test and find what's causing symptoms. And of course, chest pain always rule out cardiac first. If somebody has acid reflux and there's burning or acid reflux can cause spasm of the esophagus and chest pain that really mimics, but we're going to go for heart first, the most life-threatening. And a patient then has a cardiac catheterization. We fill their arteries with dye, find blockages. Then how do you decide, try medications alone or stent or right to bypass surgery? Well, the first determination that a cardiologist makes uh, when he does a catheterization is whether something is critically narrowed, meaning more than 70%, whether the single vessel, double vessel, or triple vessel disease. Uh, generally, if patients have a non-dominant vessel that is uh, narrowed, uh, it can be medically managed. But by the time that they're a referral to heart surgeon, it's that there's more than one vessel diseased or that there is a very critical narrowing Uh, that the patient is going to be at high risk for a heart attack very soon. So the arteries that feed the heart come in different sizes. When we think about it, as we said, the heart is the pump that supplies the entire body, but heart, heal thyself. The first artery that comes off the aorta goes right to the heart, the left Main. main. And when somebody has left main disease, that's our lingo for saying we have to treat this stat. Yeah, so left main disease is actually one of the critical uh, vessels on the heart. It supplies 70% of the heart muscle. And very often when we have a left main narrowing, we call that a widowmaker lesion. It's the patient that uh, people say, oh, he was out there raking leaves or shoveling snow and all of a sudden he keeled over. He probably has a left main disease. Right. So if it comes to the choice between a stent and bypass surgery, it's going to depend if it's one of the larger, if it's a widowmaker where we see a blockage or maybe a smaller artery, we might be able to get by with a stent. Right. So um, the, I know yeah. you had Dr. Savage in here. Yes. Uh, and, you know, what the cardiac catheterization shows him is what vessel is amenable to stenting, whether there's more than one vessel, how long the lesion is. So he makes all those determinations. Uh, and very often there's a discussion that goes on with the heart surgeon, whether this patient is better off suited for surgery or for stenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, you know, we have enough protocols and criteria now that most of the cardiologists know when a patient should be referred for heart surgery. Sure. So then we look at the whole patient and we say, what is the patient's age? If it's a person who's 50 years old, we might approach it a little differently than if the person's 75 years old. Or if they have other issues, which we call comorbidities, diabetes, maybe they have kidney disease. How does that factor into your decision? So I think when every patient is considered, uh, there, you, know, you had Dr. Howard White's on here a few weeks ago, and uh, uh, Howard has a, a number of criterion for patients that are at risk for any surgery. Uh, so when we take into effect that you're going to go undergo open-heart surgery, uh, we want to make sure that the patient can get out of it with a good result and not be affected by the rest of their disease problems, whether it's diabetes, whether it's hypertension, et cetera. So... We do depend on the cardiac catheterization because the dye doesn't lie. The dye tells us pretty specifically how narrow an artery is. Um, But we also count on the stress test. I'm not going backwards, but I think when a person is running or cycling and we're watching their cardiogram at different levels of exertion, we find out people who are at risk for a heart attack or sudden death. 
And sometimes that points to left main or the biggest artery feeding the heart that branches into other areas and say, you know what? We can't mess with this. We have to go right to surgery. Doesn't that happen sometimes? There's a lot of patients that are what we call asymptomatic at rest. Uh, and uh, they have a, a funny feeling in their chest or they have a palpitation or maybe they've just gone for an insurance physical and somebody looks at something on their cardiogram and says, hey, there's an abnormality here. I think the stress test is the first sort of screening mechanism by which we can say that this patient is good at rest, but when the heart is stressed out, uh, meaning that when it's exercised, uh, that there's not enough blood going, and then that's the higher risk for a heart attack. And, and to our listeners, if you have symptoms and you have a normal stress test, my dad was healthy, low cholesterol, good weight, active, all those good things, but he had smoked till the age of 50. By 66, every Thursday night when he put the trash out, there was an elephant on his chest. Didn't tell anybody. Why would he? And uh, so when I heard about it, it led to him being tested. He had a normal stress test, and four weeks later, he had five bypasses. So individual stories, individual assessment. Absolutely. And when a cardiologist uh, assesses the patient, not only for the stress test, but he looks at their risk factors. What's their family history? Uh, What's their cholesterol? What's their diabetic load? What's their hypertension? Are they a smoker? So those five major risk factors matter. When we come back, more about bypass surgery and what exactly happens when you're the patient. You're listening to your radio doctor on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you so much for tuning in on a Sunday morning. We've uh, created an opportunity for our listening audience to connect directly uh, with Dr. Marianne. Just drop her an email at doctor at yourradiodoctor.com and uh, you'll be able to connect with Marianne. Send in questions if you have them uh, and continue to learn. Back in a moment as we roll on here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. Middle of February on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Don't forget coming up following Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne. We take you into the sounds of Sinatra with Sid Mark. All that coming up at 11 o'clock. Doc? Fly me to the moon. We're here with my distinguished colleague, Dr. Roe Mars, the director of the cardiothoracic surgery division at Jefferson. So, Roe, explain, if you would, what a bypass surgery entails. At, at first, we use the expression cabbage, which stands for coronary artery bypass grafting. And that means that we. So, essentially, when we talk about bypass surgery, uh, specifically for coronary disease, what we're, ty- what we're talking about is to create new plumbing. There's a blockage in a vessel, and what we're going to do is create a new pipe using vein or an artery uh, that goes around that blockage so that when that vessel eventually closes down, the patient never feels it. So it's like the media bypass or the beltway in Washington. That's it's a different way to get there. So, And those vessels we might take from... Yeah, so the majority of the times what we try to do is the first uh, level is to try to use an arterial graft, which is an internal mammary artery that is on the inside of the chest wall. And obviously we have extra vessels that we can use. So you can use the left or the right internal mammary artery. And we can use the radial artery in the arm because there are two arteries going down the arm. 
Uh, and we uh, generally also use saphenous vein from the leg. And there's also gastroeploic arteries. So without getting into too much detail, there's a number of different conduits or vessels that we can use for bypass. And I guess when I was a student, we would see the veins taken from the legs. The arteries probably have a little longer half-life. That's correct. Uh, an artery generally lasts longer in terms of patency, meaning how long it's open. Uh, majority of the reason is because it's an arterial uh, vessel that can take the blood pressure that a heart ejects. Now, the vein normally doesn't have that blood pressure. Right. So let's say somebody has severe peripheral artery disease. In other words, if cholesterol has blocked the arteries that supply the heart, then maybe the carotid arteries in your neck that supply your brain or the, the arteries in the rest of your body are affected too. Does that make you say, hmm, Maybe we should sit tight with just medication and take that to the max, which we always do anyway. But Well, we take this by case-by-case case basis. But mm -hmm. there's no doubt, Marianne, that uh, when a patient has a vascular disease, whether it's in the coronaries, whether it's in the carotids that are going up to the brain, or even peripheral vascular disease down to the legs, most patients have a complex of that. So patients get tested for both peripheral vascular disease and carotid disease when they come for heart surgery or vice versa. So tell us what happens during a typical surgery. We don't, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, I have to have open heart surgery. But we just said the vessels are on the surface of the, surface of the heart, so we're actually opening the chest. And that's a very old term that unfortunately patients have stuck to for many, many years. Open heart surgery generally just means that we're opening the chest. We're not necessarily opening the heart. Uh, and when we open the chest, whether it's a full chest incision, what we call a sternotomy, or whether it's minimally invasive through small incisions, it's the fact that we're getting into the heart, putting the patient on the heart-lung machine, and then doing the bypasses, or even at some times not putting the patient on the heart-lung machine and doing them what we call off-pump. Ding, ding, ding. I think Dr. Morris wins the prize for the, the um, most fun thing to talk about today. <laughs> That's the heart-lung machine that we're Jefferson colleagues was invented and developed at Jefferson. In fact, the first time it was used, May 6, 1953, Dr. Morris can tell us about it. Yeah, Dr. John Gibbon, uh, a brilliant, brilliant surgeon, uh, uh, had devised a number of methodologies to try to oxygenate the patient. And his first uh, research was actually what to do with a patient with a pulmonary embolus where they couldn't oxygenate. And that's where his research started. Oh, right. But immediately picked up on the fact that what he was doing was supporting the patient uh, for open heart surgery. And his first patient had what we call an atrial septal defect that he was able to repair by putting her on the heart lung machine. Is that something, Doc, that uh, is um, still used frequently today? So the heart lung machine is used every day, every, mm -hmm. okay. hundreds and thousands of times across the United States. It's now. Uh, a field that is 70 years old. Um, there's actually what we call perfusionists, people that are actually trained on running the heart-lung machine. And the, the, the machine and the methodologies that we use have gotten safer and safer over the years. Because one of the steps to doing this bypass surgery is the surgeon has to stop the heart, be still my heart. And if the heart's stopped and it's not pumping, how is the blood circulating, getting air from the, well, you're on a ventilator, the patient's being artificially, how does that process continue? How do we keep the blood flowing? It's the heart-lung machine. So actually what happens is that we connect the patient 
to the heart-lung machine by what we call cannulas or tubes. We drain the blood from the body. Uh, we return at the heart-lung machine. And then the heart-lung machine oxygenates it, cools it down when we need to, and returns it back to the body so that you can be placed on heart, what we call cardiopulmonary bypass as a methodology to keep the patient alive for many, many hours. And clearly, when we do a heart transplant and we cut the heart out, the patient is still alive because we've kept them on the heart-lung machine. Sure. So I have to ask Dr. Morris this very important question. What do you eat for breakfast? <laughs> well, my, my wife makes sure that I try to eat yogurt as much as possible. Good, and high fiber. I'm a GI doctor. I was going to ask if you eat nails for breakfast because this is a man who's holding people's hearts in his hand on a daily basis. He's calm, he's lovely, he's smart, and approachable. And if you can find a doctor who is this experienced and takes care of such tedious and important work and is still approachable, you have a winner. Um, I know, I, I don't know if you remember this TV show that used to be on, What's My Line? And John Daly would give the celebrities 20 questions to say, and you know, what you do, is it bigger than a bread box? Can I hold it in my hand? I love it when people say, what do you do? And I say, well, I look into people's souls. I do colonoscopy and they say, <laughs> ooh. But you can say, I fix people's hearts. That's pretty, pretty awesome. And I've had some wonderful experiences. I've had uh, patients come in for emergency surgery on Valentine's Day, and the wife asked me to take oh. a picture of her husband's heart oh. so she could have it forever. Those which, kind of stories. Which reminds me of the Valentine's Day, the first year we were married, and I got stuck in a snowstorm buying that special crock pot that my husband wanted. And when I came home, I opened this magic box, and there was a cow heart in it from, from his physiology lab, which I thought was so thoughtful. So when a patient is preparing for surgery, one of the most important messages you can give a patient is to? Well, the things that most patients come to ask me is, what can I do to prepare myself for surgery? The first, and the first answer is, obviously, if you're a smoker, to stop smoking. Uh, I may not be able to correct your lifelong habit, but even if you can stop smoking for three or four days, you stand a very good chance of coming off the ventilator much easier. You will not produce as much mucus. You won't cough as much, which hurts after surgery. So uh, stopping smoking at least for the four or five days before surgery is highly important. Uh, the second is to just exercise normally. Walk. Uh, don't try to exert yourself. Uh, eat a normal diet. Uh, don't try to think of this as your last meal because you're undergoing heart surgery because you'll only get constipated uh, during surgery. Uh, and approach it as is something that's going to improve your life, not fear it because it's surgery. And so what are typical questions that patients ask you? Uh, Doctor, is this going to help me live longer? Um, will I feel better than if I just take medications? What happens if I don't have the procedure? Yeah, so the, the, most patients don't want to have surgery, obviously. Uh, but the reality is when they're sent to me by a cardiologist, they've, there's also already been a determination that the patient is high risk for having a heart attack. Once you have a heart attack and you have injury to your heart muscle, you are already diminished in your survival. So very often my surgery is not to make your symptoms better because most patients are asymptomatic. It's to prevent them from having a, a cardiac event, whether it's heart attack, sudden death, arrhythmias. So it's almost a prophylactic operation once we've identified. And we know that from many studies, that if patients have coronary disease and they're left alone, uh, they will suffer worse than if they have heart surgery. What are the most common risks? 
involved with bypass surgery? I think the biggest risk is obviously bleeding and infection. Uh, the infectious risk is uh, multiplied when you're diabetic or overweight. Mm. Uh, certainly smokers heal uh, less slowly. Well. Yeah, yeah. Heal slowly. Uh, so those are the things that we control. And obviously, if you have other disease, kidney disease or hypertension, those are risks that you, uh, as long as you're with a doctor and you're controlled in those, uh, in those uh, facets, uh, you can do heart surgery pretty safely. So aside from having more congestion, if you're smoking and continue to smoke up to the time, does that extra congestion increase your risk for pneumonia as well? It absolutely does, and especially in patients that are elderly. So patients above the age of 65, and I don't use that number. Just, uh, uh, a I, reference point. As yeah. a, I use that as a reference point. The number one uh, complication in elderly patients is respiratory failure. So you get a pneumonia, then you don't oxygenate, then your kidneys don't work. And so it keeps multiplying. So uh, when we put patients on the ventilator, because they have to have general anesthesia, we want to make sure we can get them off the ventilator as quickly as possible. And really, if you are on the ventilator for a longer time, you're going to have ups and downs of oxygen levels, increases and decreases from plugs of congestion. And that's not good for your brain, especially if you are a senior citizen and low levels of oxygen then a lot of those people, not a lot, but back when I was a student and I would see people on the respirator for three to four weeks and they woke up and they weren't quite the same because some of their neurons right. went on vacation and their memory was less. And would you say there's a correlation with increase in dementia? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that's advanced in the last 20 years is we try to get patients off the ventilator as quickly as possible. And mm -hmm. the normal time is between four and six hours after surgery to Beautiful. get them off. Dr. Morris is a Dr. Marianne special guest here on your radio doctor here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. As we go to a commercial break on this Sunday morning, we'll continue with Dr. Morris and your radio doctor. Back in a moment. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to radio.com and in the search bar, type in your radio doctor. It's health education on demand. And back here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, this is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne. We thank the listening audience for tuning in on this Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, starting at 10 a.m. It's your radio doctor. Doc. Thank you. Dr. Rohinton Morris from Jefferson University Hospital, King of Cardiothoracic Surgery. I have a question for the doc when you get Please, there off the yes. last segment. I wanted to ask on behalf of the listening audience, mm -hmm. um, how, how scared, doc, are people when they get to you and have that conversation uh, about having bypass surgery, having open heart surgery? Yeah. Uh, 99% are scared out of their minds. Uh, this is probably one of the biggest surgeries they're going to have in their life. The idea of having their chest opened is even scary. Uh, and what I try to do is reassure them that there are, you know, 400,000 patients done yearly in the United States. We open and close their chest. We stop their heart. We start their heart back up again. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do almost 8,000 cases myself. So there's a lot of people walking around with a scar on their chest that do even better after surgery than if they didn't have surgery. So what's typical, not that there's anything typical, but 
what would a patient expect from the minute they walk in the door until they leave? Yeah, so the first thing we try to explain to them is when they first come into the hospital, nowadays they come in on the day of surgery, so people are not uh, expected to come in the night before. Uh, they come in the day of surgery, they've been prepared, they've had their pre-admission testing. It takes about an hour to get them into the operating room, put monitoring lines into them, uh, put them to sleep. Uh, we make the incision, and generally three to four hours later, we're done with surgery. Then they spend about a day in the ICU and about four or five days recovering on the floor, home in about five or six days. It's incredible. And not that I keep hearkening back to the past, but you have to have a point of reference. When we were students, uh, late 70s, we would, as junior medical students, hold an instrument while the doctor did the surgery. And it would take from 7.30 start till 1.30 to repair one vessel. Now, if a person would have, say, three or four vessels, Open yeah. to close might be three hours? Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. Uh, and one of the, <laughs> the biggest advances that has come across in medicine is the fact that we've moved patients. We used to keep them intubated or on a ventilator for 24 hours. We've kept them in the ICU for three days, keep them in the hospital for 10 sure. or 14 days. Nowadays, all the, the, most patients get off the ventilator in three to four hours. They're sitting up in, in bed or in a chair the next morning. They're walking by the afternoon. By the second or third day, they're walking around the halls, and then we're just trying to stabilize them until they can go home in five days. So if your surgeon pushes you to get out of the chair and move on, it's not because we don't care about your pain. It's because we know that if, you, if you're lying in bed too long, you're more likely to aspirate. You're more likely to get pneumonia, blood clots, and all those things. And so nowadays, if you have chemo, you go home or... or you have your baby, you're out in a pretty short time. It's not because we don't love you. It's because we do love you. And the longer you're in the hospital, you are exposed to infection. We call it nosocomial infection. Somebody might not wash their hands. They touch a doorknob. And then when you touch that doorknob, you're open because you're vulnerable having been through surgery or on antibiotics or, or steroids even that open the door for infection. Right. I think one of the big uh, advances in nursing care has been mobility of the patient. Uh, so rather than keep a patient in bed, uh, sedated, it's to get the patient involved in his care. So my ICU nurses, my floor nurses get these patients up and moving very rapidly uh, to the point where the patients themselves are surprised at how well they can go along. And that's another key feature. We want your heart to be in normal rhythm. And Dr. Morris has a rhythm with his team. It's people that do this all the time and you have trust in each other and a great flow. So let's shift over to the next type of heart surgery we'd like to talk about today, which is either repairing or replacing a diseased heart valve. That's correct. And so we know that uh, for many years, the, best, the only way to replace a heart valve was to open your heart. Here's an, op- here's a, an example of opening the heart to do the surgery. Um, but now we can do it through a catheter. Yeah, so this is what the newer procedures have occurred over the last five to seven years, uh, what we call a TAVR or TAVR, which is transcatheter aortic valve replacement. And what it is is that the valve is now crimped or uh, squeezed into a, a delivery device that you can now put a catheter up in, in the groin in the femoral artery or in the axillary artery in the chest or even with a small incision and going through the apex of the heart and then putting the catheter in and blowing up the new valve inside the old valve. Now, last week, Dr. Mike Savage 
shared the story of the German surgical resident in 1929-ish who said, I have an idea. I think if I put a catheter into the heart and infuse meds, I'll take care of the problem. I can't imagine anybody tried TAVR, which mm. is putting a catheter into his or her own artery and tried to see if they could fix their own valve. No, they actually didn't. But a very funny story is that uh, the first time this was done, this was done on a cow on a live uh, production. And, uh, and there were a lot of naysayers in the audience. And uh, immediately it was shown that it could be possible. And the whole field exploded. Incredible. Moment. Really. And then the other decision, the other fork in the road is, when do you decide whether to use a tissue valve from an animal like a pig or a cow or a horse uh, versus a mechanical valve? Because it's the outcome, that it's how long the valve will last and the age of the person. Obviously, like we said, as we said before, if it's a child or a teenager that needs a valve, we want it to last longer than somebody who, well, than somebody who's 80, but they have a longer life expectancy with the repair. But then we have to say mechanical valves require anticoagulation or blood thinners, which is something we have to consider as well. Right. So the first recommendation for any valvular replacement is uh, dependent on what the patient's life expectancy is. So if we have a patient under 60, we generally expect them to last a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And that may, they may need another reoperation. Now, years ago, a reoperation was much higher risk. Uh, nowadays, lesser risk. But generally, the recommendation below 60 is to get a mechanical valve. What mm-hmm. a mechanical valve is, it's made out of plastic, a carbon pyrolite. Um, and that carbon pyrolite lasts forever. However, you do have to be on a blood thinner for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Now, above the age of 60 or 65, the recommendation is you get a tissue valve, which is in the United States generally a cow or a pig. In Europe, there's still horse valves. Uh, and that's not the valve of the cow or the pig. It's from tissue from the cow or the pig, which I a see. lot of patients don't understand. Uh, but you don't have to be on anticoagulation. The downside of a tissue valve is that generally it lasts about 15 to 18 years. Interesting. So obviously when you're 75 or 80, you would much rather take the 15 to 18 years and not have to deal with uh, anticoagulation because as you get older, you need more procedures, you're more prone to bleeding. Therefore, it's better to avoid that if we can help it. Sure. And not just that, but think about it. When you're 75 or 80, you're a little more likely to trip and fall and hit your head. But I guess we could say that about an active teaser or a college student who uh, wants to play sports and have an active life. So. That's correct. So then if you're going to be on anticoagulation, those recommendations to avoid a uh, very, uh, I should say, uh, active lifestyle, meaning if you're going to play ice hockey, it's not a good idea to be on a blood thinner. Mm-hmm. But certainly you can still exercise. You can you take normal precautions. Sure. And you can live a long life on that. I know my mother-in-law used to say that she had a pig valve. She, uh, you well, know, and I, and I didn't quite know didn't translate mm-hmm. what it actually meant. So yeah. for, for the clarity, I, I, I appreciate it. I didn't know up, up to this mm-hmm. point, I didn't know what she meant by that. Yeah. So it's actually the lining of the heart of the pig or the cow that the companies actually fabricate to, to denature it. So you don't reject it. And those are actually sewn onto a stent. And then, uh, that's what I put into a patient. So unlike other conditions that we treat that require uh, maybe a hip implant, or that's probably not a good analogy, but a foreign body's put 
into a person's heart. Is that something we have to worry about, like a bone marrow transplant or other transplants that you might reject? Uh, so actually, that's a great question because patients ask me that all the time. These valves are treated uh, and denatured, so they don't have what we call antigens for your own body to attack. However, because it's a foreign body, what we call fibroblasts still build up a reaction to them, and then eventually these, these valves will calcify. So they build up some cholesterol or plaque, and then they will eventually stop working. Now, how about a uh, woman's of childbearing age? Um, would you make a distinction with a woman who says, I haven't had a child yet? Because the hemodynamic or the fluid changes that occur during pregnancy can lead to decompensation of the heart. And if the valve's already, do you make recommendations specific well, to pregnancy? This is actually a board question. Oh. Um, um, the reality is that if a woman is of childbearing age, she can't take Coumadin if she gets pregnant. Coumadin is teratogenic. Uh, meaning it can cause cancers in, in the fetus. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, we avoid putting in a mechanical valve in somebody that young who's of childbearing age. And we have that discussion, uh, and depending on what the woman wants, but we'll generally put in a tissue valve, understanding that in 15 to 18 years, she may have to come back to have another valve replacement. Mm -hmm. So it's a, young, a woman young enough to have a baby, and we want to give the longest life to the valve we can, but Coumadin can hurt the baby. That's but it's also, I would think, too, with you, you hope for vaginal delivery so you don't have to do a C-section because of potential bleeding. But you don't want the woman to bear down too much either. So there's so many puzzle pieces and moving parts to delivery. But um, I would think also you don't want excess bleeding with the pregnancy if a woman goes into labor. To stop the effect of Coumadin, you have to stop it for two days. Right. And I think we think about that with other patients that have cancers, they may need resection, sure. elderly patients. So I think each patient comes with its own set of problems. And we'll be back after this break. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And as we bring you back in to your radio doctor here on a Sunday morning, here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, uh, you've heard me say many, many times, radio is such a theater of the mind. And uh, I think, uh, Dr. Marianne, that um, our conversation today uh, with Dr. Morris is providing a great picture for the listening audience to not only visualize, uh, but also uh, to understand. And can I say, can I weigh in and say that Please Dr. Do. Morse is a very, very um, defined individual, meaning he's on the very top of his craft. And I don't say that because I knew him before he walked into the studio. I say that by his answers, his mannerisms, uh, and exactly how he's uh, handling the show today. So well done uh, by you. you, Dr. Morris. Appreciate that. Very precise. So we've talked about bypass surgery and when and what type of valve might be considered for somebody who's had rheumatic fever as a child. They don't know it and they get to a certain age and they become short of breath with exercise. And it's because that valve that was affected by strep bacteria as a child has now uh, decided to rebel. The last topic we'd like to cover is LVAD, left ventricular assist device. And we know this as a mechanical assistant 
to a heart that's weakened by thyroid disease or pregnancy and the heart um, starts to fail and we want to help it pump. And the more popular name around the hospital is LVAD because we can't say all those words all the time. So the LVAD might help some tide somebody over until they have a heart transplant or maybe maybe that's the, the only therapy that we use. If you could tell us a little right. bit about that. So let me give you a little background on this. Uh, the number one reason for death in the United States is congestive heart failure. Mm. More people die of congestive heart failure when the heart fails than die of cancer, trauma combined. In the old days, and I say that for 30 years ago, we used to ask patients what their parents died of, and they'd say, oh, they died of old age. Well, nobody really dies of old age. Exactly. They die because their heart fails. <laughs> the only treatment for heart failure uh, and it's the number one reason for patients to get admitted to the hospital, number one DRG in the United States, a DRG meaning diagnosis-related group, um, is heart failure. When patients get heart failure, there's nothing more for them to have. You have medications that can palliate you, but eventually you're going to die of that. The only treatment for that, true surgical treatment, is that heart transplant. But about fifty to 60,000 people die a year of heart failure, about 10,000 people are candidates for heart transplant and only about 2,500 get heart transplant. So 25 years ago, just to get patients to heart transplant, we started doing what were called ventricular assist devices to allow them to get to a heart transplant. And we figured out that some of these patients on devices were actually living beyond the heart transplant time, meaning that they didn't get a heart transplant yet. So in 2001, the first device was approved for what we call destination therapy, meaning a ventricular assist device instead of transplant. And over the last five to eight years, there are more ventricular assist devices placed than heart transplants in the United States. But people don't know about it because it's just this newfangled, what we call Star Wars technology. But it's been going on for 15 years. Well, I have to admit that I do mostly outpatients. Sometimes I see hospital patients. But... I just became familiar with it myself within the past two years because in the endoscopy suite, we will do colonoscopies or upper endoscopies because when you're in the hospital with lung cancer or orthopedic surgery, you might still have a bleeding ulcer or you might still have diarrhea from the antibiotics. So we see patients with every problem. And when we see our LVAD patients, we're very cautious about monitoring their vital signs and knowing exactly precisely, as you say, it's a really, um, but it's fantastic when you think about it. Every once in a while, somebody will use the expression, we can land a man on the moon, but we can't do this or that. And I guess when you think of cell phones or LVADs or any of these things that come along, it seems so obvious that we do a whole transplant or remember the, uh, the artificial hearts before we had, right. um, it seems so sensible to just help the pump do its thing. That's exactly right. And actually, Michael DeBakey started at the oh, National, right. Heart and Lung, National Heart and Lung Blood Institute mm. in the 50s, was the first one to get a grant to research on an artificial heart. And the artificial heart is actually the holy grail for cardiac surgeons. Uh, and what the ventricular assist device has done and that field has done is to give us the capability to allow people to live without uh, having a heart transplant. So the majority of uh, devices that are done now are patients that are above the age of 65 that can't get a heart transplant and that live five, eight, ten more years with the device in place. Which is fantastic. 
And one of the reasons why you're asked to see these patients is because they have to be on a blood thinner. Right. So they get uh, GI bleeding. They get some uh, what we call AVMs, uh, arteriovenous malformations that cause them to bleed. And so the GI endoscopy suite is actually one of our biggest partners on patients with LVAD. Sure. And really, I'm sure there are people who, instead of saying they're waiting for a transplant, we're going to say, well, they're a certain age on the on the higher end, like 70 plus or so, and they have diabetes, and they have stage three out of four kidney disease, maybe we'll be very happy just to do the LVAD because the surgery itself, if that's successful, if we transplant a heart into the, the patient who needs it, right. then they're on um, anti-rejection therapy. Right. And it's all those other, it's not just the act of taking the organ and gently putting it into the, the person who needs it, it's the aftercare. And, and I have to say, as Joe already mentioned, we can tell just talking to Dr. Morris from Jefferson here, uh, director of the cardiothoracic surgery division, it's more than just the technical surgery. The post-op care is the sign of a truly gifted surgeon, or I should say conscientious surgeon, because it's not just the gift that you're capable, it's that you care enough to be precise and be thorough. Yeah, thank you very much. I think one of the things that you have to understand about the LVAD and all those things is it's not a referral to a surgeon. It's a referral to a team with an advanced heart failure coordinator. I should say a VAD coordinator, advanced heart failure cardiologist, a nutritionist, a social worker. And some of the newer patients we're seeing are the, the patients that are in the cardio-oncology world, patients that have had treatment for their cancer and they survive their cancer Sure. But the drug treatments for that have weakened their heart and they can't get a transplant because they have to be on immunosuppression. But these patients come for LVAT. So that's a new group of patients that we're just starting to see over the last few years. Well, this has been fantastic and perfect example. There is no I in team. I think Dr. Morris gets the humility of the year award. Tune in next week. Thank you again for listening. Next week, our cardiology uh, visitors will be Dr. Reginald Ho and Dr. David Chapon. Learn about the value of rehab after a heart attack or after heart surgery. How to protect young athletes from sudden death or with preseason physical exams. And the value of lay people learning CPR. When you think about it, you leave your children in daycare. You trust that the bus driver or the airplane pilot is healthy. And what if they have a problem? We need to help help people on the street. I know myself, I've done CPR probably 15 times in the last 20 years, twice on airplanes and um, train stations, all kinds of places. And remember, March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Colon cancer is common and often deadly, but it's preventable. Help us spread the word that colonoscopy saves lives. In March, we're begging you, put a blue light on your porch or put a strand of blue lights on the door of your home or your business. And remember that your health is your wealth. Special thanks to Dr. Morris for joining us here in studio, along with Dr. Mary Ann on your uh, radio doctor as we get ready to say goodbye to you on this uh, Sunday morning. Uh, one trivia question from uh, the show today. Uh, what will Dr. Morris have for breakfast uh, tomorrow? Uh, we already know, sir. If my wife listens, uh, I'm sure she's got the yogurt packed for me already. We already know the answer. Well, Thank with, you. with the nails in it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. This is Your Radio Doctor on Talk Radio 1210, WPHD.
Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.